Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast, a deep dive rewatch podcast, spending time with America's favorite radio station, WKRP in Cincinnati. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm his wife, Donna. This is a week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. We're getting into the trivia, the characters, and the details that have made WKRP one of America's favorite syndicated sitcoms for nearly 40 years. So, fellow babies, don't touch that dial. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to another WKRP cast. Glad to have you with us. Donna, what are we talking about today? We're talking about I Want to Keep My Baby. Air date was the 12th of March, 1979. It was written by Hugh Wilson and Bill Dial. The story editors were Tom Chihok, Bill Dial, Blake Hunter, and Emily Marshall. It was directed by Asad Kalada. A young mother with no money, no friends, and nowhere to turn leaves her baby for Johnny at the station. And we get right into it in the studio. The doctor is at the turntables, and he's asleep. (laughs) Or at least his eyes are closed. I don't think he's fully awake yet. He is engaged, and he's got the kinks on the turntable. That was the Kinks' rock and roll fantasy from their latest album, Misfits. And this is Dr. Johnny Fever. That one came out in May of 1978. He's keeping his eyes closed all the way to the end of the song. And when he needs information, it's just one eye at a time. (laughs) Time is... 6.07 6.07 in the morning. Whenever Johnny does this, we've seen him do this before where he's laid back in his chair, his eyes are closed, but I think he knows exactly what's going he's, on he's every aware. minute. Well, and they're also setting us up here for a great joke. He is so asleep. He's telling us it's 6.07 a.m. <laughs> and then he punches a commercial. Wouldn't the delicious ice cold beer taste particularly good right now? Sure it would. You got to have a cold beer at 6.07 in sure, the morning. Sure, it goes with your Cheerios. This guy sounds familiar to me. I think our Weisenheidel beer announcer is also the announcer on the Hutchins Community Hospital spot from the contest nobody could win. So I'm going to do a quick check here. Here's our Weisenheidel announcer. When the smart set gets together, you can be sure they're having one Weisenheidel beer after another. Here's our community hospital announcer. And Hutchins Community Hospital, where malpractice is rapidly becoming a thing of the past. <laughs> I'm thinking same guy. Could and, be, could And be. no credit either time. Well, while he's playing this uh, beer commercial, the phone light on the board lights up, and Johnny rolls his chair over to answer the phone that's over on the wall. Yeah, KRP. 
It's uh, real nice of you to say so. Can you hold on a minute? Johnny innately knows that the commercial is coming to an end. Somehow his internal clock is letting him know that that commercial is about he over. He is that good. He is that sharp. He turns <laughs> He turns it up, and we get the tag on the spot. They're having one Weisenheidel beer after another. <laughs> Weisenheidel. Look for the smiling face of the Archduke Ferdinand on every box. Archduke Ferdinand. We looked him up, and he was born, he is a real person, he was born on the 18th of December, 1863. <laughs> I like that you put in there... A real person. We've got to make sure and, and and identify that. He's a real person. This was a real guy. He was heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary. He and his wife were assassinated on the 28th of June in 1914. Now, this is a big deal. Yes. Because that one event, his assassination, he and his wife, is considered to be the cause of World War One. It started things off. Yeah, yes. got it going. So that's a big deal. That is the Archduke of Ferdinand. And that title, Archduke, means a sovereign prince of the former ruling house of Austria. So they made up that name for that particular level in that government. Hugh Wilson used this joke as an example of the network wanting to dumb down the show. Yeah, he said, he gave this specific one as an example in an interview. He said, CBS executives said, well, what about this joke about this Archduke? They said they wanted it killed because no one would get it. Right, but Hugh Wilson, he refused and he kept it in. He gave more credit to WKRP's audience. Yeah, he flatly refused to dumb it down and he said if the audience can't keep up, that's their problem, not his. <laughs> well, Johnny starts the song Hold the Line by Toto. This has always been a favorite Toto tune of mine, but I did not realize this was the first Toto tune. This is the one that made them. Came out in 1978, their first ever single from their self-titled album Toto, and this peaked at number five on the Hot 100. Johnny goes back to the phone because, remember, the person was on hold. He tells the person on the other end that, um, sorry, they were not allowed to accept gifts. So remember what we learned in the Johnny Comes Back episode about Paola. Yeah, a little Doug Winter action there. <laughs> so what, what are they offering the doctor? A what? Where? Uh, hey, it won't work, really. See, first of all, Hello? Hello? Now, without a monitor on anywhere in the building, Johnny goes out into the lobby. It's dark, and there's no noise. If I were wandering around the station, I'm the only one in the building, I would have the monitors on in every single room. I want to know my song is still playing. He left Toto playing. Yes. When he left the lobby. It's completely dark. He's the only one there. He unlocks the door leading to the hallway. He goes out, and he comes back in carrying a basket with a crying baby inside. (laughs) 
just what I always wanted. WKRP in Cincinnati. We come back from our cold open, still in the studio. Johnny has the crying baby with him. Johnny's pretty flustered. He starts to put the baby out in the hall, which that makes the baby cry even louder. Then he takes the baby back, puts it on the counter, which for me, I'm looking at it going that noisy baby right by a microphone. Not Mm -hmm. a good idea. (laughs) He is opening the mic on the air with the baby crying in the background. And the song that he had put on, the Toto. You know, he should have had those monitors on. It's skipping. Yes, he doesn't realize it's skipping until he puts the baby down on the counter and then he turns the volume up. We don't know how long it was doing that. Gotta listen to what's going out over the air, doctor. I want to talk about this uh, <laughs> baby crying yeah. sound. It was It's awful. Mm. And the baby cries a lot. <laughs> and it's obviously an adult making these baby crying sounds and not doing a They're very good job. They're not doing a good job. And this is something that a lot of people comment on regarding this episode. Couldn't they have found a recording of a baby? We've talked about it. It's really annoying. And once you dial in on it, and very sorry about this, we're pointing it out now. Once you <laughs> dialed in on it, it gets even more annoying. It's possible somebody was standing off screen with a microphone adding live baby sounds so that the audience could get, you know, the jokes of Herb, you know, the crying when Herb's around mm-hmm. and, and the baby crying at inappropriate times or getting louder or softer, all those things. If they did this with somebody just doing sound effects off stage, the audience would get that. And what it sounds like then is they came along later, added in somebody trying to imitate a baby. Yes. And why not just use an actual recording oh, yeah. of a real baby crying? Didn't work. Not no. sure what that choice was but really hmm. irritated me through the entire episode i would have enjoyed the episode more if it had been yeah, a, just a, a real baby just a natural and i think it drew attention to it because it was so obviously not a baby if it had been just a recording of a baby that would have been great man somebody <laughs> vocalizing it it did not work well johnny stops the song from skipping and he gets on the mic and he's asking the lady who called him this morning to please call him back he wanted to hear from her And then he kind of bumbles through introducing the next song because he's so flustered, um, which is way too perfect. B-A-B-Y by Carla Thomas. The baby finally stops crying. Johnny asks it if it's had breakfast yet. Uh, I got some... Coffee and nachos. <laughs> obviously a held nut. Oh, he's also got a breath mint, too. How about a breath mint? In the next scene, we're in the lobby, and Carlson enters, and he kind of stops and looks at Jennifer's desk because she's not there. He checks his watch, and he's like, what is going on? And then he sees a baby bottle sitting on Jennifer's desk, and he hears a noise in his office. He opens the door and goes in to find Herb, Les, and Jennifer with the baby on his desk. Oh, and look at Herb. Would you look at Herb? <laughs> I think it's time. Herb Darling, fashion alert. He's wearing a blue checked jacket, which just the jacket alone is worth the right. fashion alert. Now, we've seen this jacket before, but this jacket is stunning. And then when you pair it with a striped brown and yellow tie and a mint green shirt. Well, and, and brown pants. The brown pants weren't bad, but... It's but, the mix of it all, though. Yes. 
It was worth mentioning the jacket again. Yes. And it it really kind of looks like Herb took all of his clothes and he put them in a basket and he shook them up and then he just pulled random things out. Shirt, pants, coat. There we go. Well, Mr. Carlson walks in and Les says... It's a baby. Thanks, Les. Just in case he wasn't sure. Les always on the scene, making sure everybody's aware of things. Yes, and then Herb tells Carlson... Johnny's... He got some girl in trouble. And he is sure. He's a DJ. You know how those people live. <laughs> Herb immediately jumps to the, the seediest of all possible uh, options. Wild DJs. Yeah, those DJs. You know how they live. <laughs> Which is really funny, considering we just came off Never Leave Me Lucille, and we saw how Johnny lives. <laughs> yes. Well, Carlson asks them why the baby is in his office. This is the quietest room in the station. Nothing ever goes on in here. <laughs> You pointed out, you I know, would that's argue, really not that quiet. I would there. argue with that. It is usually <laughs> Grand Central Station in Carlson's office, and also everybody uses his office, not just him. Even when he's <laughs> not there, there's always, you find Herb, you find Les, there's always somebody in his office. Andy enters. Good morning, Travis. Uh, there's a baby on my desk. And Jennifer says, Bailey just went out for fresh supplies. Yeah, and there were a couple of clean diapers in the basket. But as you can see, she went through them pretty quickly. And we get smell-o-vision. Yes. You get the reaction of the, the scent in the drawer, and it's enough. <laughs> Jennifer and Les head out to fix some bottles. And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye NewsHawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nessman. Right This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist Les Nessman. Les is working his way through the digits. (laughs) Yes. Every finger is getting a bandage. We've we've had a couple of interesting ones with the upper arm and those, but he really works the fingers. I'll help too. I'm very good with children. So Herb claims he's good with kids. Herb has two kids. There's some experience there. We don't know how good he is. Boogie, 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 boogie. (laughs) The baby responds to Herb poorly, and Herb heads out to door. Herb even tries to sneak back in. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But they notice that the baby stops crying when Herb leaves. That's a smart kid. It's in this scene that we get our first look at the actual baby. Up to this point, we've been looking at a basket and a bundle, but there hasn't been a real baby there. Our baby is played by a young man named Danny Openden. Now, when we saw Danny Openden's name in the credits as the baby, it was more a joke than anything. I said... Do you think we could find him? Well, I was game. We knew he would be about 42 years old. Other than that, we didn't have much to go on. Danny had a couple of other IMDb credits, but only kid roles, nothing as an adult. Now, in my Googling, I found a woman named Lori Openden, who recently retired as the head of casting for the CW Network. She was a groundbreaker in her field with over 40 years in the business of TV casting. Her retirement prompted the Television Hall of Fame to do an extensive interview with her. In that interview, she mentioned her tenure as a staff casting person at Mary Tyler Moore Studios in the late 70s. Surely this was some relation to Danny. Mom, maybe? An aunt? 
We couldn't find a number or any contact information for Lori. But I did come across a Daniel Openden, Ph.D., 42 years old in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Openden has a Ph.D. in special education, and he is the CEO and president of the Southwest Autism Research and Resource Center. Could this be our guy? There was a number. I left a voicemail. I'm quite sure I sounded like a stalker. <laughs> Well, thankfully, Danny has a great sense of humor, and he called us back. We had found our guy. Danny was personable and hilarious on the phone. He said he was impressed we'd tracked him down. Only close friends and the guys on a local morning radio show know his secret identity as Johnny's baby. Danny was quick to admit he'd be a lousy interview. He was two months old at the time. He said we really should talk to his mom. Lori, yes, the same Lori Openden who recently retired from the CW. He said she knew the details about his experience on WKRP. Danny was kind enough to put us in touch with Mom, and Lori was kind enough to grant us a very interesting Zoom interview. Lori got her start in television as a secretary on the show Barney Miller. She was soon promoted to assistant casting, then head of casting by age 24. Her work on Barney Miller was getting noticed. So I worked on Barney Miller and the head of casting at MTM was a lady who has since passed away named Marilyn O'Loughlin. And um, she called me and she said, I, I love your casting on the show. I love how you find these incredibly funny character actors. And uh, so I met with her and um, it was a really tough decision. But MTM at the time was like the most popular you know, small studio there was. It was doing Mary Tyler Moore. Um, the year I started at MTM, it was uh, the um, Mary Tyler Moore had just ended. Um, but the, but the, the production company was just the hottest thing going and it attracted all the best writers in town and everything. And so I went to MTM as a staff casting director. Now there again, they don't, nobody has those anymore. While at MTM, she didn't work on WKRP, but she did have her plate full with other MTM properties. I was casting, I, I believe it was Rhoda and the White Shadow. And then I went on to do Hill Street Blues, um, which was my best credit ever was Hill Street Blues, which led to me going to NBC a couple of years, a few years later after three years of doing that. Without exaggeration, during her time at NBC, Lori opened and went on to cast the shows that have shaped our lives. My time at NBC, I oversaw the casting and worked on Friends and ER, wow. Frasier, Seinfeld, um, West Wing, uh, um, L.A. Law, you know, like amazing shows. That was the height of, of NBC. But any, um, during any the... big shows, anything we've heard of, <laughs> anything we might have heard of. I don't know. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, it was called um, Must See TV. For a fascinating look at Lori's career, make sure to check out the TV Hall of Fame interview. But we need to get back to WKRP. How did it come about that your newborn wound up on Johnny Fever's couch. All of us were in like one building on the first floor at uh, MTM. At, we were at CBS Radford in Studio City. And uh, Sharon Himes was a good friend of mine. And she was the casting director on WKRP in Cincinnati at the time. And I had just come back from maternity leave. I came back to work. Um, I, I didn't take the three weeks before. So I came back. Um, my son was uh, five weeks old. And I think I brought him the first week or something like that. But Sharon ran in my office and she goes, 
there's a, a storyline where um, they're going to leave a baby at the um, at the radio station for Johnny Fever, and Hugh Wilson said we could use your baby, and um, I go what? And it was it was great. You volunteered he, your baby, huh? Yes, and he and she said he has to play a girl. I said, well, okay, that's okay. I'm all right with that. Now, aren't there special rules for working with a baby on a TV show? You know, for a baby to work on the set, they're only allowed to work like 15 minutes at a shot and be on the stage right. for two hours. So at the time, um, there was no audience that, as you asked me, um, they had to do it, you know, like we call it pickups. And, um, and so he was there. He all, I also had to have a nurse on the set and my, a friend of mine was a nurse. So she wore her white coat and she came with us on the set <laughs> And um, I think I had to get a physical or something for him, which was easy. As a guest star, Danny had to share a dressing room. We think he'd have appreciated his accommodations more if he had been about 20 years older. We went to the set and everybody, you know, he was two months old. Everybody's loves babies. And mm -hmm. of course, as I mentioned yesterday, he was a beautiful baby. And, um, and it was just so much fun. And Lonnie Anderson was the one that they they gave me like a little space for him and it was her dressing room. And so she was hanging out with him and she was gaga over him. Her, her daughter is older and she definitely would love to have another child, which she did. Um, she actually adopted a baby with Burt Reynolds later yeah. on. And so, you know, I'm looking at her. She's so beautiful and so lovely, like just the sweetest person. And I thought, here he's laying there two months old, what he would feel like with, you know, Jennifer Marlowe staring into his face and everything. Because of her job in casting, Lori understood how important it was for Danny to be recognized in the credits the way he was. What I loved about it, it is at the end of the episode, at that time, MTM was great about putting guest star names under the picture of the actor. And they, they did it. If you saw the episode, it says Danny opened it under. And I thought, oh, my God, he got billing like that. And he was paid as a day player. And I don't know if he mentioned it, but he still gets residuals on this. We've learned on WKRP, if you don't speak, you don't get a credit. Well, Danny didn't say a word, and somebody else was doing the crying, yet he wound up in the credits with his picture. How did he pull that off? Because it was family. You know, Hugh Wilson <laughs> did that for me. And uh, and that was like the best thing, to see this baby with the name under it, like guest star credit. And because uh, the way it works in television is if, if you're an extra or background person, you don't get residuals. But, but there was so much focus on the baby that it, it he didn't have to be a guest star, but he technically was allowed to, you know, to get a credit and to get the the higher amount of money, which at the time was two hundred twenty five dollars. Which oh yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, yeah, and right, so right. his his residuals now are I think the last one was like you know ten cents or something. <laughs> it's, it's he's forty two, so it's forty years later. Uh, and he still, it doesn't even pay for the stamp to send him. <laughs> thanks so much to Danny Openden for being such a good sport. And a special thanks to his mom, Lori, for taking the time to talk with us. Back to the episode. 
Everyone is in Carlson's office looking at the baby, and Bailey comes into the office with an armload of fresh cloth diapers and begins to fold them. Now, I'm no baby expert, but my first look at this, I thought, why are they using cloth diapers? Weren't there disposable diapers in 1979? Well, we had to find out. So we looked it up. The first disposable diaper showed up around 1947. The first mass-produced and mass-marketed disposable diapers came from Johnson & Johnson in 1940. And Procter & Gamble introduced Pampers in 1961. Pampers are made with seven layers of softness to bring your baby heavenly comfort. Pampers, the discovery that makes diapers old-fashioned. As little as a nickel apiece. Get this, by 1970, American babies were going through 350,000 tons of disposable diapers a year, which was 0.3% of all U.S. municipal waste. It's a lot of poop. A lot of poop. (laughs) Currently, American babies wear 4 million tons of disposable diapers a year, which nowadays is up to 2.5% of all municipal waste. Gracious. Andy, what's going on here? Well, some girl left her baby for Johnny. And then enters Johnny. He's come to check on the baby. He tells Carlson that he's trying to get the mother to call him back, and when Carlson asks, what's he going to do about this? I don't know. You're the station manager. I guess she's your baby. What do you plan to do about a college education? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I think Art's still thinking this is Johnny's. Somehow he's the father here. Yeah, she ca- he called him dad yeah. at one point. There's a little bit of discussion about who we should call. Art wants to call the fire department for some reason. Andy says <laughs> not. Might make more sense if they called Children and Family Services. Look, we'll call them. Okay, Hey, it's your baby. No, it's not my baby. It's his baby. I've already got a baby. He's in military school, I think. I have a lieutenant and colonel. It's a mean little devil. (laughs) And is this the first reference that we've gotten to Art's son? The first one I can think of, yes. I think so. And this is the first reference. We're going to meet Art's son shortly. They're still in the first season, but this is the first time we've heard about him. Now, Children and Family Services is a government and or nonprofit organization. They assist those who need help due to unfortunate situations. My mom used to be a DCFS caseworker in Illinois. Oh, I bet she's got the stories. Mm, She had a few. They have some confidentiality things. They can't talk too much about it. But yeah, she did a little bit of that. Uh, It is for people who have nowhere to turn and have a place to go for help. It helps both families, but really the focus is oftentimes on the kids. These services may be mandated through the courts. They struggle with taking kids out of abusive families, but one of the main missions of most CFS offices is to keep families together. So it's a tough balancing act as they work to try and preserve families. Johnny changes the baby, and then he asks Bailey to finish up because he's got to get back to the studio. He has been out of the studio more than in the studio in this episode so and seems far. very casual about being out of the studio so oh. so we got jennifer and les uh are back with the baby bottle and les wants to feed the baby jennifer please may i go first oh sure thank you but seems to have no experience doing this how do you do this jennifer starts to explain and she sprinkles some milk from the bottle on les's arm well uh first you test it We decided to dig in a little bit on the whole baby bottle thing (laughs) and discovered there's evidence that babies have been fed by some type of bottle, cup, jug, or other device for thousands of years. Yes, they used to hollow out 
cow horns to give babies a drink in the Middle Ages with a bit of soft leather attached the cow horn became a baby bottle. And across parts of Europe in the 1600s, there have been discoveries of leather, wood, and pewter flask-shaped bottles with screw tops. They were very common, and some of those still survive today. In America, it was Charles M. Windship of Roxbury, Massachusetts, who patented the first glass nursing bottle in 1841. Now, the French are given credit for the invention of the shape that bottles are today. Oui, oui. Oui, oui. To test the temperature of the milk in a baby's bottle, experts suggest sprinkling a little bit of the milk on your wrist, which is the most sensitive part of your arm. And the idea is it shouldn't feel too hot or too cold. You should almost not even feel it, and it's just right. It felt just right to less. How does that feel? Good. (laughs) Herb tries to sneak back into Carlson's office, thinking the baby's radar may not be that sensitive. It doesn't work. And now we cut to the studio where we find out why Johnny was uh, pretty much at ease there about hanging out in Carlson's office. Venus has been called in. I'm doing it in the morning. This is Venus. We know from when Johnny was gone out in L.A., Venus is not too thrilled about doing the morning show. He's got his yin-yang gong, and he's playing Lively Up Yourself by Bob Marley. Now, Lively Up Yourself comes from a phenomenal Marley album, a real pivotal album released in 1974 called Natty Dread. I have always heard this term, Natty Dread. I have always associated it with Bob Marley and the, all of that experience. Had, Natty Dread has always been a term. Never knew what it meant. So So we looked it up. We looked it up. (laughs) Natty Dread or Natty Dreadlocks. It's a slang term. Yes, Natty means natural. It's shortened natural, so natural dreadlocks. They are all terms for a member of the Rastafarian community. So being a Natty Dread is being a member of the Rasta community. And the Natty Dreadlocks are dreadlocks that have not been treated in any way throughout their growth. It's time to get the funk out your face, Cincinnati. Get the funk out of your face. Venus is doing his nighttime show in the morning. I don't know how well it's translating. Well, I'm taking that to mean, you know, those little eye boogers you get. Yeah, yeah, there it is. When you wake up, get those eye boogers out of your face. That's the funk right there. That's the funk. (laughs) Venus uh, notices the strobe on the board goes off, so he rolls over to answer the phone, and he's got a great way to answer the phone. Venus on the rise. Venus on the rise. It was kind of hard to hear. Turns out the baby's mother calling for Johnny. Johnny happens to walk in for some reason, they've got Venus in here now, but Johnny still feels compelled to come into the studio. He's just there to bug Venus or I don't know what. But but they get the phone call, and Johnny steps out into the hallway where it's quiet so he can talk to the mom. You leave a little baby with a total stranger, and, you, and what are you thinking about? He's telling her to calm down, but she needs to come get the baby before the welfare people take her. Get yourself together. Yeah, just think about things, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and then you call me. No, no, really, this, it'll all work out perfectly. Believe me, you'll see. 
Okay, and you call me back. Hello? Hello? And she's gone. She's hung up. So Johnny sticks the phone back in on the cradle, and he, he tells Venus she hung up on him again. Venus's evaluation, I tend to agree with. He says she must be some kind of a nut, but Johnny doesn't think so. I think she's just a young kid. She's broke. Her old man ran out on her. She doesn't know anybody in Cincinnati. She says she listens to my show every morning, and I'm the only person in town that she knows. I've heard about these unhealthy type relationships before with uh, people from the listening audience and DJs. They've been the subject of movies. I mean, if you look at Play Misty for me, Clint Eastwood, uh, that's a very unhealthy relationship Mm -hmm. he had there. Uh, Talk radio, you see an example there of an obsessed fan. And these kinds of connections that listeners make with a DJ especially are pretty common. It happens a lot. Somebody that's lonely, somebody that, uh, you know, is, is having some trouble in their life. They find that friendly voice. There have been songs written about it. DJs are referenced in a lot of rock and roll because they're your connection. They're that voice you wake up with first thing in the morning. possibly the last voice you hear before you fall asleep at night. So somebody has latched on to Johnny. She feels like Johnny is her friend because she hears him every morning. Les rolls in, officious, ready to go, top of the hour. It's news time. (laughs) It's news time. Get out of the way. He starts tossing albums at Venus, clearing off his area. And then Les starts to hum a bit of... Lullaby and goodnight... Which is Brahms' Lullaby. That was first published in 1868. It is the most popular of Brahms' compositions. Yes, he has just come from giving the baby her bottle. And he turns to Johnny and says, I really like your baby, Johnny. (laughs) And Johnny, who just... A scene ago, not taking any credit for the baby, now seems very, very proud of his, <laughs> his baby. baby. Thanks a lot, Les. Mm-hmm. Listen, Venus, you want to see my baby? All right, so Johnny's ready to go introduce the kid to Venus now, and they head out of the studio. Les starts his intro tape, and he proceeds to do all sorts of voice warm-ups, spraying his throat. Oh, here's Today I watch. (laughs) Remember, I worked with a news director that she kept bottles of chloroseptic outside the studio and spritz. That makes it numb, though. It does. It's not a good. It's really not recommended if you are a voice performer. But she did this all the time, and she would take two or three blasts of chloroseptic right before going in to do the news. So Hmm. it's not uncommon, but for less, it doesn't seem to work very well. No. Also, this is the kind of scene that would get cut for syndication. To make the syndication package of the show, they would cut out these oneers. This is where, you know, you've got one guy doing this visual joke with just the microphone. It really doesn't advance the story. It's not real important to have that in there. So that would be 50 seconds or a minute that they could... But it gave everybody a chuckle. We're so glad to have it back in the Shout Factory disc. We didn't have that for all those years when it was out there in syndication. We didn't get to see less. We go back to Carlson's office. Mr. Carlson is walking with the baby, rocking it back and forth, and singing... Unpredictable, too. 
Art's doing a little crooning to the baby. He's uh, singing a hit from 1963 for Old Blue Eyes, Call Me Irresponsible. Call me unpredictable Tell me I'm impractical Rainbows I'm inclined to pursue Call me irresponsible Yes, I'm unreliable But it's undeniably true I'm irresponsibly mad for you Johnny asks Carlson for his baby And Carlson says... He thought it was his baby. And, <laughs> but he hands her over to Johnny so Venus can get a good look at her. And I don't think any of these guys are going to pass a paternity test. It's not <laughs> any of theirs, baby. She gets a tan, she's going to be a heartbreaker. <laughs> Jennifer enters with the news that the folks from Children and Family Services have arrived. Johnny suddenly panics. Uh, tell him to leave. Say what? Yeah, just uh, get him out of here. Uh, go ahead. I-, I don't care how you do it. Just make up something, okay? He puts the baby in the basket and kind of grabs it up, holds it close to him, tells Jennifer to tell them to leave. Carlson tries to talk to Johnny. Yeah, and- wait a minute now, Johnny. I'm sorry. Hey, look, get, what, what's the matter? Huh? He walks toward him. And we get the, the penultimate line, the name of the show. I want to keep my baby. And then when Carlson tries to reach for the baby, Johnny raises his hand <laughs> like he's ready to karate chop Carlson. Yeah, right right in the midst of all that kung fu mania, Johnny was <laughs> ready to karate chop. Don't touch his baby. We head back out into the lobby now, and we see a man and a woman who we don't know waiting for Jennifer to return with the baby. These would be our DCFS workers. They're wondering what's taking her so long. What is taking her so long? I don't know. No, Lorraine. The woman's character name is Lorraine, and she's played by Mary Betton. Mary was born in 1936, and she died in 2017 at the ripe age of 81. She's known for T.J. Hooker, Mork and Mindy, Doogie Howser, Life Goes On, and Falcon Crest. Now, the guy's character name is very unique, and I'm wondering if this is somebody that somebody knew. They had to get this name in there. Chick Hudspeth. Is the guy's name. And Chick is C-H-I-C. Chick Hudspeth is being played by Michael Flanagan. Michael, a professional actor with 21 credits. He appeared in uh, such series as Head of the Class, Hill Street Blues, Matlock. He was in Little House on the Prairie. And he was in the phenomenal TV movie Rescue from Gilligan's Island, (laughs) where he played the character of the director. Andy enters the lobby and introduces himself, saying he's the one who called about the baby. Okay, now Jennifer, who just left to go get the baby, comes out of Carlson's office. Hello. She walks right past the two from DCFS and goes to her desk. They look at her confused and ask where the child is. The child? You were going to get the baby. Oh, you mean the baby. You see, you said the child. There's really quite a difference, you know. Children are much bigger than babies, for one. Travis is confused, too. He looks at her and he's like, what are you 
talking about? And then Venus comes out of Carlson's office. He has the baby in her basket, but covered with a sheet. Laundry man, laundry man. Yes, sir, it's coming through. <laughs> Did this make you a little uncomfortable? This made me just a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Venus is funny, but a little uncomfortable. I know how you folks like your things fresh and white. <laughs> And when Travis asked Jennifer what's going on, using a southern accent... That was the laundry man. Again, uncomfortable. Funny, <laughs> funny, but uncomfortable. Even though we feel uncomfortable, Venus had fun with He's it. He's having... I think Tim, Tim Reed's Reed, having fun yes. with it, too, yeah. I know how you folks like your things fresh and white. Johnny comes out of Carlson's office, and we've still got these folks from DCFS standing there in the lobby, and they're wanting a baby, not all of this other stuff that's going on. Andy tells Johnny these are the people that are here for the baby. Oh, I'm so sorry the baby left. Johnny! They want to know what's going on. Why have they been called down here and now the baby left? Well, Johnny's starting to make up some things. He says, nah, the mother came and got her. Lorraine and Chick are, are getting a little frustrated. Chick, find out what's going on here. So, Chick. What's going on here? Chick steps right in and asserts himself. Andy says he really kind of would like to know what's going on, too. Well, Johnny asks the DCFS workers. When a mother abandons her baby, what are her chances of getting it back? Well, Chick tells him not very good, but then Lorraine steps in. Well, each case is different. Johnny kind of dismisses him. He says they do good work. There's no baby here. Maybe come back in nine months. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Lorraine and Chick are really getting frustrated. They want to know what's going on, so they knock on Carlson's door and walk into his office. You see Carlson hiding the baby's bottle under some magazines, and they get on each side of Carlson. Now you remember the diapers are being stored in Art's desk, and Chick positions <laughs> himself right in front of the drawer where for some reason they've been putting the diapers. <laughs> Chick makes a nice smell face. We get more smell-o-vision. And then he opens the drawer where the diapers are. Well, of course, he looks at Art. They're mine. <laughs> okay, so that's what's called thinking fast, but not thinking well. <laughs> he thought fast, but it wasn't very good. There's no baby in Carlson's office. These two from the Children and Family Services leave, and they're going to get to the bottom of this. I would question their capability as DCFS workers, considering the fact that Venus walked by them with the baby, and they fell for it. No, that was laundry. <laughs> that was the laundry man. <laughs> Well, here we go into Johnny's apartment. And in these last few episodes, we've spent a lot of time in Johnny's apartment. Now, this time we get an exterior shot of Johnny's apartment. And, you know, this is the kind of stuff we love. Was this really in Cincinnati? Well, yes, it was. This was taken on Calhoun Street in the Heights neighborhood. And this is just across the street from the University of Cincinnati's main campus. Three of those buildings that we see in that picture still exist. And our man in Cincy, Chesie D, did some research on this for us. He said the consensus is the bar that you can see in the shot in the show was called Mormons. And there was a record store there in the storefront. Thanks, Chesie D, our man in Cincy. And how fitting for Johnny to be living up above a record store. And a bar. And a bar, yes. Both, both working with Johnny's lifestyle, I'm sure. <laughs> well, Johnny has the baby lying next to him as he folds diapers and watches a movie on TV. Listen, Cosgrove, I know the girl's blind. 
but I still say she can swim the English Channel. We aren't getting a whole lot of outside references to things in this episode, so when you mention the English Channel, we're headed there. <laughs> Let's talk English Channel. It's a section of the Atlantic Ocean that divides the southern part of the United Kingdom from northern France. This stretch is the busiest shipping lane in the world. The channel is about 350 miles long, and it varies in width from 150 miles at its widest point to 21 miles in the Strait of Dover. Now, when you hear about swimming the English Channel, those attempts start in Dover, England, and end in Calais, France. Matthew Webb is the first person to ever swim the English Channel in August of 1875. Now, although he crossed there at that narrowest point, which is 21 miles wide at the Strait of Dover, he actually had to cover 39 miles to account for the tidal currents as he was swimming. In 2019, Sarah Thomas, an ultramarathon swimmer from Colorado, swam the channel four times in a row without stopping. It took her 54 hours. Just talking about that makes me tired and cold. Shoo. Yeah. Why? Why? I, I don't know, but she did it and go Sarah. Set a record, I guess. Johnny says the show's boring and turns off the TV. He gets the baby's rattle and there's a knock at the door. On his way to answer the door, Johnny makes a very subtle movement. He pulls a cord which drops a bamboo blind. Now, if you weren't watching for it, you don't know why he did that. And we weren't. We had to back it up and mm -hmm. say, why did he do that? What did he what do he there? Well, if you back it up, and I'm sure there are some of you that saw it, Johnny has a very large marijuana plant back there in the corner of his kitchen. And when you drop that bamboo blind, it hides it from anyone in the living room. So Johnny was pulling the cord. Now, I'm thinking about folks watching this show in 1979. Yes, they did not have the luxury of being able to go There was back. no way. And once that thing is down, you have no idea what he had covered up. We never get another look at it. But if you were possibly growing your own at home, you probably saw that <laughs> and caught it. And I'm betting that's what Hugh Wilson and Howard Hesman were counting on. There were some folks out there that went, oh, look what Johnny's got. And then he covered it up. Hey, hey I got something to mail you out. Man, you're just freaking oh. out here. And he got laughs, but they were very, very minimal. Just right. a few guys yeah, out there. Not very many. Yeah. Well, when he opens the door, it's Jennifer. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. I had my date drive me over. He's down in the car. Now, this would be the first reference we get to Jennifer's ongoing habit of dating wealthy older gentlemen, right? This is the first time. That we've gotten this. Jennifer said she just wanted to see how the baby was doing, and she starts questioning Johnny. You know, did she have her bath? Did she have dinner? Uh, we had uh, some of the brown stuff and uh, <laughs> about half a bottle of the green stuff. <laughs> we don't seem to like the yellow stuff very much. Not surprising at all that the ladies are very unsure about Johnny's capability as a nanny. Yes, because there's a knock on the door, and it's Bailey and Andy. Bailey goes through the same question. Yeah, she starts quizzing him the same exact thing. Johnny starts cleaning up around the apartment, and we notice that Johnny, for some reason, has a hammock hanging from the ceiling of his apartment. And it's hanging so high, I don't know how he gets in it, but he, there he were, was using it to, to 
to dry the diapers. They're like bumpers or something rolled up to hold it out. You know, a hammock normally will will gather up right. and just be, you know, all in, in like a, a rope. A wadded up thing, yes. But this has these bumpers in it that keep it out and open, so it looks like a hammock, but it is right up within a foot of the ceiling. So kind of <laughs> odd. It's very good for hanging diapers from... Yeah, it works for the diapers very well. Uh, so as Johnny is cleaning up, he decides to be the host. He asks if he can get anything for anyone. Uh, what can I get, everybody? I've got some popcorn. Uh, I could put some yellow stuff on it. <laughs> the yellow stuff, not a favorite with the baby. And there's another knock on the door. And here comes a teddy bear. A oh, no, hold it. Hold it. It's less. It's less. <laughs> Yes, this this bear, it's bigger than Les. He comes carrying it in. And he announces... I had to bring this all the way across town on my motor scooter. <laughs> Les gives us one of the great visuals of this show. And this is a visual that I remember this planted in my head back when he first said it. And I first saw this episode in 79 when he says... By the way, Johnny, there's a long black car outside with a small man in the back seat. He keeps beating on the window with his cane. I can picture that little man in that limo beating on that window with his cane. I've just got a visual. <laughs> well, my visual that I like is less on a motor scooter with the with giant that huge teddy bear. bear. Yeah, that's a good one, too. <laughs> well, after Les says this, Jennifer says, Oh, I think I better go. She's pushed it a little bit on time. He's, he's, he's getting impatient. I think she'd rather spend time with a baby. Yeah, I think so. Johnny assures everyone that the baby will be all right, and he knows that the mother will call tomorrow. He says that if she doesn't, he will call family services himself. Bailey's sitting there with the baby on her lap, and the baby begins to cry, and Johnny gets worried, and he comes over and asks what's wrong, and Bailey hands the baby to Johnny, and the baby's still crying, and Johnny sits down, he's trying to comfort the baby. What's wrong? Well, I don't know. She was just asleep. Then there's a knock. Guess who? Come on in, Herb. And when he walks in... The crying gets even louder. That is a fun, fun running gag. I yes, like, I like that. They're one. using it a lot. Yeah, they are. <laughs> they are. But they're they're getting they're getting some mileage out of it. These guys are together all day long, working at the radio station. Then at night, they all end up together again. No social life. No family. <laughs> well, Jennifer has a social life, but she is foregoing <laughs> foregoing her social life for the baby. We don't seem to like the yellow stuff very much. In the next scene, we are back in the studio, and we notice that Johnny is wearing a Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden t-shirt. Now we've got both Johnny and Andy in interesting shirts. So we're going to do a t-shirt breakdown. We're starting with the zoo. <laughs> the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden is the sixth oldest zoo in the U.S. It opened in 1873. It sits in the Avondale neighborhood of Cincinnati. It is the home of Martha, the last living passenger pigeon. It's also the home to Incas, the last living Carolina parakeet. They're very involved in renewal and the propagation of species, and they do a lot of breeding there at the zoo. They are regularly ranked as one of the top zoos in North America. In the studio, Johnny is playing Teach Your Children by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young from the album Deja Vu. Now, don't you think Johnny's been theming his show? It sounds like yeah. it. He's got babies on the brain. Yes, he does. This is a fantastic song. It came out in 1970. The single, Teach Your Children, peaked at number 16. This was written by Graham Nash. He's the Nash in Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young when he was still a member of the Hollies, but it never got recorded by the Hollies. So Graham was walking around with this one in his back 
back pocket. They put it out as Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, but featuring on pedal steel guitar a hot young guitar player out of San Francisco named Jerry Garcia. Jerry was trading his pedal steel guitar services for the help of CSNY. He wanted them to work with the dead on improving their vocal harmonies. You, who are on the road, must have a code that you can live by. They had some big albums coming up, and he figured Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the dudes when it came to vocal harmonies, could maybe give the dead some tips. And can the years Can't know the fears That your elders grew And so please help them with your the baby is in her basket on the counter right there next to Johnny as he's working. And that one's going out especially for Peggy, who should call the doctor right away about the basket case. <laughs> he also says it's been three days and nights. And we got that little bit of a time indicator at the end of the last scene. He said, if nothing has happened by tomorrow, I'm going to make the call. Well, tomorrow has now turned into three days and nights. So Johnny is not wanting to give up the baby. Andy is in the hall looking in through the window as Johnny puts on Return to Cinder by Elvis. Yeah, he's playing a 33 at 45. Which you brought up. You wonder why it was on that speed because they never play 45. They never seem to play 45. albums. Yeah, I don't know why it would have been there. But uh, Return to Center was a hit in 1962. It was one of the many, many songs Elvis did in the 60s that wound up on a movie soundtrack. It was written by Otis Blackwell and Winfield Scott in the U.S. It made it to number two. It probably would have been a number one for Elvis, but at the time, the Four Seasons had Big Girls Don't Cry firmly lodged at number one and would not budge. And you might remember it was Otis Blackwell who also wrote Elvis's huge hits, All Shook Up and Don't Be Cruel. Well, Johnny stops the turntable when the song is playing at the wrong speed. And he moves it back by grabbing the turntable itself and pulling it back towards him. And then he starts the song again. And now the long version. (laughs) Which that line is one I have heard before many times. I don't think it originated here. I think DJs had used that one before, but Johnny made sure to get it in there. And Alan just about flew out of his chair when <laughs> when Johnny stopped the turntable yeah. and pulled it back like yeah, that. Yeah, he did a bad, bad thing. He stopped a turntable that was still in bad gear. Bad Johnny. Bad Johnny. That turntable was still in gear, and we talked about that when Les came in during Tornado and took the turntable out of gear. There's a little tiny wheel in there that's rubber that pushes up against of that, that big platter that is spinning. And while the thing is in gear, that wheel is pushed up against and spinning spinning against that platter. So when Johnny stopped that thing, that little wheel that's pretty delicate because it's got to spin at an exact speed, that little wheel now is grinding up against the platter as he's holding it because he didn't take it out of gear. He stopped it, backed it up, then he changed the gear. 
So, yeah, I was completely freaking out watching that. Andy sees all this happen, and he comes in and he tells Johnny, it's time to give this up. It's been too long. We need to think about the baby. This isn't good for the baby. And it's affecting Johnny's work. And Andy's got on an Edgecliff College t-shirt. So we get another t-shirt check here. Edgecliff was a private Catholic women's college founded in Cincinnati in 1935. Edgecliff merged with Xavier University in 1980, so it no longer exists. And it really, really, really no longer exists because the place where historic Edgecliff House used to stand has been replaced with a 23-story condo tower. That's kind of sad. got rid of all remnants of Edgecliff. But what are you going to do? You're going to bring the baby to the station every day? Yeah, if I have to. Why you just sit there between each and every record begging for a phone call? If I have to. I can't let you do that, man. I want to see you stop me. Johnny is almost combative when he's talking to Andy. Yeah, he gets threatening. This kind of the stance. Well, they're both looking at each other with their hands on their hips, and they're about a foot away. And then finally Andy says, you know, we'll talk when you get off of the air. Which diffused it a little bit, and it kind of made Johnny realize, he you could tell, he understood, oh boy, I got a little too aggressive there. Yeah, he apologized. Yeah. And Andy leaves the studio. That's when the phone light goes off on the board. Johnny sees that strobe. He grabs the phone. Hello? Peggy, how are you? He's so excited. And we go to the lobby. This is actually a cut for time, but they don't give us that indication that it's a cut for time. There's a space in there, but it seems like this is happening right after he picks up the phone. Right, right. And I was confused because the last scene, he's on the phone with Peggy, the mother of the baby. Then it goes to the lobby and Lorraine and Chick are back. And it makes it seem like they are coming into the lobby as he's talking. Just as he caught that call. It's like we cut from the studio where he got that call right to the lobby. Yes. where these guys are walking in. But then we realize some time has passed. We don't know exactly how much, but... I wonder if maybe that wasn't a choice on the part of the director or the editor to just give us that sense of, oh no, you know, there's going to have this clash, and then we find out, oh, it's later, and Johnny called. But it was a little confusing. Well, Carlson gets a little nervous when he sees Lorraine and Chick come in. Yeah, I have uh, an important meeting in my office. If you uh, locate those important papers, you just bring them right on in. <laughs> Hold on my phone call. Yes, sir. I'll be right in here, all by myself. Does he usually have meetings with himself? Yes, all the time. Again, thinking fast, but not well. Andy comes in and sees them, and then he says, oh, I guess you have a court order now. No, Mr. Fever called us. Johnny called you? Yes, he did. Andy is shocked. And this is when we realize, oh, this is later in the morning. Bailey Bailey comes in and immediately starts the cover story, (laughs) which is now embarrassing because she's obviously lying. There's no point in me even looking. There just is no baby. Now here comes Johnny, and Lorraine asks if they can talk privately with Johnny. Well, I think she's thinking maybe they could go in Carlson's office. Jennifer instead says she'll just take the phone off the hook. Jennifer, why don't you take the calls in my office? Don't worry, I do it all the time. <laughs> she does it all the time. Yeah. How often does she do it? Yeah. <laughs> well, Lorraine tells Johnny that he's doing a very nice thing, and she assures him that if they hear from the mother, they'll be as fair as they can. Well, I don't think you're going to hear from her. Uh, she decided to leave town. Baby's more than she can handle right now. And you know, 
I'm kind of glad they went this way. This is not the fairy tale route that the mother's right. reunited with the baby and everybody lives happily ever after. This is more the reality of the situation. This Single really mom, happens. alone in the world, no resources. She can't be taking care of a baby. And this really, probably as difficult as this situation is, is probably the best thing for the baby. Lorraine is trying to make Johnny feel better as she explains that there are many couples who would love to adopt that baby. Chick's in there to, you know, help out. This is isn't a sad occasion, Mr. Fever. It's a joyous one. So Johnny takes them to the bullpen to meet the baby, and everyone is there hovering around <laughs> the baby, and Herb is holding her, and Finally. she isn't crying. Finally. She's putting up with Herb. John, look, I did it. Your baby likes me. Well, that's real nutty, Herb. Yeah. <laughs> so, Herb's so happy. Finally. Hey, <laughs> this is our first time in Andy's office this episode, and we've got a couple of new posters uh, right there by the door as you come in. We saw the promo poster for the Starbuck album, Searching for a Thrill. Now, Starbuck was a rock band out of Atlanta, Georgia. They were formed in 1974. And if you know Starbuck, you know them for one reason, and that would be their single, Moonlight Feels Right. Moonlight Feels Right. It reached number three on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1976. That was pretty much it for Starbuck when it came to the big hits, but they did continue from 1976 until 1980. I did like that song, Moonlight oh, yeah. Feels Right. It I haven't was good. heard that in ages. It was a good one. Well, and we get another little shot of a poster. Uh Herb is very, very happy that the baby likes him. He's sitting there on the couch in Andy's office. When Lorraine wants the baby, Herb will not give it up. So Herb stands up and moves over towards Andy's desk. And just for the briefest instant, we see a Pablo Cruz poster in the spot that has normally or previously been occupied by ELO. Pablo Cruz is a band that formed out of San Francisco. So here we've got a Howard Hessman connection. You probably know them for either Love Will Find a Way or their biggest hit single, What You Gonna Do. What you gonna do when she says goodbye? What you gonna do when she is gone? What you gonna do when she says goodbye? What you gonna do when she is gone? Here's a fun fact. The name of the band is Pablo Cruz. That's the name of the band. Even though it sounds like a guy's name, there's no one named Pablo Cruz in the band. And up until this moment, when we did the research to find that out, I always thought there was some guy named Pablo Cruz. Me too. This scene ends with Herb trying to keep the baby away from Lorraine, but the implication is that Lorraine and Chick take the baby. So we get a capper scene now. We move into the studio. Johnny's on the board. He's playing Lover's Prayer by Randy Newman. This was uh, going back a few years. It came off of the album 12 Songs, which was released in 1970. It was Randy's second album. Oddly, one of the other songs on the album is actually called Have You Seen My Baby? I don't know why they didn't pick that one. Then Johnny introduces the next song, and he plays Smiling Face by James Taylor. Whenever I see your smiling face, I have to smile myself because I love you. Yes, I do. 
you give me that pretty little pout It turns me inside out There's something about you, baby Smiling Face was released in June of 1977 from the album JT. It peaked at number 20. Handyman also came from this album and peaked at number four. And at this time, James Taylor was married to Carly Simon, who appeared on a few songs on the JT album. Also, doing a little backup singing, we find Linda Ronstadt. So, James friends with all the heavyweights. That's it for the episode. Johnny didn't get to keep his baby, but it was a pretty good conclusion to the show. Okay, if you are listening to us in real time or you downloaded on first day, we've got an upcoming programming note for you. This episode was released on December 22nd of 2020. On December 29th, of 2020, we are going to do a WKRP cast extra where we are going to read the outline of Bill Dial's Turkeys Away episode. That's going to be an extra. Then we are taking off January 5th. Then we come back on January 12th of 2021 with commercial break. The staff of WKRP is tasked with creating a commercial for a lucrative advertising contract with a funeral home. And I know I seemingly say this about almost every other episode, but <laughs> man, I love this episode. This is a good one. It's a favorite of mine. So thanks a lot. That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure and check our show notes. And thank you so much for joining us. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, wkrpcast at gmail.com. And remember, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye. May the good news be yours. The WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!